Hi, this is Ken Robinson. Get ready for a great conversation. But remember, every Tuesday, there's a new edition of Audio Antiques from the K-Rob Collection, featuring highlights from the golden age of American radio on many of these same podcast platforms. Welcome to the Ken Robinson Podcast. Get ready for conversation and information from the people who are making a difference. Hosted by veteran Hall of Fame radio and television journalist, Ken Robinson. Hello, everyone. Thanks for calling up my podcast, and welcome to all our listeners in the United States and around the world. On this show, we're going to examine matrimony. Why do marriages fail? And the reasons why so many partners cheat. We'll take a look at a famous couple whose relationship resulted in a mysterious death that still has experts guessing. But first of all, we take a look at data from the National Center for Health Statistics, which indicates that an increasing number of American adults are postponing marriage. Some are choosing to forego tying the knot altogether. ABC News correspondent Mark Rimmelard has been investigating the findings and joins me on the line from New York City. Mark, I heard some of this is because of COVID-19, but there are other issues involved as well, right? Yeah, so the CDC has released its numbers uh, every year. They calculate uh, a marriage rate, essentially, within the U.S., and this goes back to 1900, the most, uh, all the way up to 2018, which is the most recent year of statistics, so not including the COVID effect, but uh, this is showing that, in general, this long, decades-long trend of, of a downswing in the number of marriages continues. Uh, and in fact, rates in 2018 hit their lowest level uh, since 1900. And so in the, well over the past century, marriages are, uh, the number of marriages are as low as they've, they've ever been. Uh, and this is a steady decline we've seen since uh, going back to the 1970s, 1980s range. Do they think it's uh, related to maybe changes in society or changes in economics or how people maybe view their careers and uh, advancing in their careers? You know, the CDC itself obviously isn't isn't uh, prescribing any causes behind this, but I, I think it depends on who you ask, but probably a little bit of all of the above there. Um, income inequality and wealth inequality may be a factor in some cases. Religious adherence may be a factor in some cases as well. But there's also, I think, one of the things when it comes to adults postponing, when it comes to younger adults who say that they may, may forego marriage entirely, those could be for very different reasons. Uh, some adults who may postpone, they could be doing that because, especially if you're you know, in your late 20s, 30s, that kind of thing, you may still be under the weight of uh, student debt, which has been rising, housing costs are higher than they used to be for earlier generations. And then there is also just some who believe marriage is an outdated tradition. And so there's a lot of different societal, but also perhaps economic reasons why marriage rates continue to decline. Uh, and again, this is not even factoring in uh, what we might see in a few years. Uh, the effect of COVID-19 and whether or not people are just simply even able to get married right now, but whether or not the economic effects going forward from COVID-19 discourage or encourage people to get married. You mentioned uh, the cost of education and student loans. Uh, 
it seems now you need more credentials. You need more education to, to get the good jobs. What, what you know, an associate's degree might right. have uh, gotten you a good job years ago. Now, uh, you know, as time progressed, you'd need a bachelor's degree and now a master's degree for some uh, for some uh, professions. And I guess that might keep you out of the uh, marriage pool, even the dating pool for a longer time, huh? Yes, certainly. That's That could be one factor. Uh, I think it's pretty uh, easy to see why that may be the case, as more people feel the need to get four-year degrees. Uh, and then it's not just, in many cases, it's not just getting, it's not just the four years that it takes a degree, you to get the degree a lot of times, bringing you into your early 20s before you may consider getting married. But uh, for many people, that student loan debt, after the fact, plagues you for many years. You're constantly uh, paying off your student loans as you're hoping to get a job, start your career. So that's part of it. More people are going on to get their master's degrees. As you mentioned, there's also the growing pool of women who are going on to get four years degrees, master's degrees, these things. And that may be also playing a role in the eventual just postponement of people saying, I, you know, I don't want to get married at 18, 19, 20, that young. I want to wait until I'm more established. And so that could be uh, all playing a role in this. But again, there's there's cultural shifts as well from whether or not people believe you still view marriage as a valuable institution to people who believe that uh, marriage, you know, is is not as popular as it once was because people are not as religious culturally as the nation once was for many people. So I think there's so many different factors uh, that it's it's hard to or, or likely impossible to just describe or ascribe one particular cause for the decline, but uh, it has been steady for several decades now. Yeah, and I guess with the uh, divorce rate remaining high, I guess a lot of some people are probably scared to get married. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. You know, it, uh, there was a the Heritage Foundation, which is a, which is a conservative organization um, uh, and is uh, very pro traditional marriage, traditional families. You know, they did talk about that, and they they say they see that as one reason, no fault divorces being one reason that there is uh, a declining stability in marriage. Whether that's the case or not, you know, I think that depends, but or or it's, it's hard to particularly say whether that's the case. But groups like Heritage Foundation see it that way. Groups like Brookings Institute looks at it, looks at it from an economic standpoint and sees deterioration in marriage among middle and lower classes. For example, that marriage rates among upper uh, high income earning families has remained very steady over the last several decades, but for middle and uh, middle class families and lower class families, um, those rates have declined significantly. And so they see, you know, from an economic standpoint, so there's many ways, I think, to look at this and to slice this pie. Yeah, yeah. Well, what does this mean for the uh, the American family? Any idea? I, I just uh, received some data today indicating that the number of Americans living alone continues to go up you have you know young people across all demographics now choosing to to live alone uh is are we looking at the family unit changing dramatically here uh possibly uh one area that has risen a lot uh in recent years is cohabitation Uh, i don't have statistics for people particularly choosing to live alone but when it does come to cohabitation, so couples living together but not being married, that is an area that continues to rise. However, that still makes up a very small amount of, uh, you know, the overall pie. And if you include the rising rate of cohabitation plus the current rates of, of people getting married, 
you're still in a net decline when you talk about the overall, you know, uh, family kind of structure. Um, there are clear advantages to uh, for uh, parenting and for kids and time, money, energy. I mean, those are pretty um, three clear advantages. But then beyond that, the you know the family structure. Uh, you know, it, it's not totally clear how that affects. Uh, you know family, uh, kids growing up, these kinds of things. There's a lot of different viewpoints on that. So in the long term, it, I think it remains to be seen what this will do or how this will affect you know, our society as we go forward in the number of years. Uh, but we've been dealing with this for a, quite a while now, several decades that these rates have been declining. Well, it's probably troubling news to marriage planners, I would imagine, and, <laughs> and uh, at recreation halls and a host of other people. This could have a ripple effect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this time right now that we're in with COVID-19 is a very difficult time for exactly that industry. This is, this is a marriage uh, is a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States, and right now, as many states are under stay-at-home orders, some couples can't even get married because your clerk's office in your county is closed and you can't get a marriage license, let alone actually have a wedding right now where you can gather people. And so a lot of couples um, have had to postpone their weddings, myself included, in fact. we've My fiance and I had to postpone our wedding. And the hard part is trying to figure out when is it going to be okay? Is it going to be okay in three months, six months, one year? It's really not clear. And that's going to affect an entire industry of people, photographers, florists, uh, venues, recreation halls, like you mentioned there. All of those are affected by this. And it's not really clear where the end of the line is and when things get back, quote unquote, to normal and people start resuming the marriages that are still occurring. Absolutely. Wow. We well, I guess this is going to be one for the uh, sociologists to write books about. I guess in the future. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This will be this will be looked at in years to come, certainly. Um, and what the effect of COVID will be uh, in the short term, and then the long term economic effect, how that will affect these marriage rates going forward. Uh, it's anyone's guess at this point. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot for the insight. Really appreciate the uh, the heads up. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. ABC News correspondent Mark Rimmelard reporting on the decades-long decline in marriages among American adults. After the break, why so many married couples divorce. Bring your finances into the 21st century with a My Checking account at Nationwide Bank, powered by Axos. My Checking is designed so you can bank on your terms. This account offers unlimited domestic ATM fee reimbursements, no monthly maintenance fees, and no minimum balance requirements. Nationwide Bank offers Direct Deposit Express, so you can receive your paycheck up to two days earlier. Plus, there's a free app so you can bank on your phone no matter where you are. Open a new My Checking account at krobcollection.com and receive $20. If you are a new Nationwide or Axos Bank customer and deposit $500 into your account within 90 days. Nationwide is on your side with a $20 gift for opening a free My Checking account powered by Axos. Get full details at krobcollection.com. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Ken Robinson. 
Well, as you just heard, more Americans are postponing marriage, and many who are married don't stay hooked for long. Dr. Alana Staley is an interpersonal relationship and life strategy consultant. She has a successful private counseling, coaching, and consulting practice. Dr. Staley is author of the book, Triangles, Understanding, Preventing, and Surviving an Affair, and is co-author of Snap Strategies for Couples, 40 Fast Fixes for Everyday Relationship Pitfalls. Dr. Staley, more people are getting divorced because a partner has been cheating? Uh, Certainly 20 or 30 years ago, people had affairs, but they just didn't get divorced. Uh, And certainly in the rest of the world, that was the case. Marriage was just something entirely different. What's really changed is the percentage of women. As far back as the 1950s, when Kinsey did his survey, he talked about 50% of men uh, and 29% of women. Uh, Now, women are certainly catching up. Studies say 50-60% of women who work have an affair sometime during their married life. Hmm. Is that because they meet men when they're working? Of course. (laughs) The thing that has really changed is opportunity. Uh Not too many men come door to door. So uh, it's women in the workplace who meet someone, they have a common interest, daily uh, contact with each other, and discretionary time. Hmm. What percentage of the population gets involved in affairs? It's a little bit socioeconomic. The probably uh, 60 to 80 percent of men, uh, successful men, have a higher percentage than uh, men who are working 9 to 5 and going home. the number of women is probably around uh, 30% for homemakers and nearly 50% for working women. Those are astounding numbers, 60 to 80% of men. Uh, the, hi- the men who have the highest level of infidelity are, of course, people who travel, pilots, uh, business people, salespeople, uh, professional people, people who have unaccounted for time. If you're a man, the chances are pretty good you're going to be in, involved in, a, in a, an affair during some point in your marriage. That's correct. Now, what about folks who say, I don't know anybody. All my men, fr- I have 10 men friends, and I don't, I don't think they're involved in any affairs. I've never seen any evidence that they're involved. Most people are faithful to their spouse most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, people are still very discreet. Now, men may talk about a sex affair uh, or imply a relationship with a woman on a casual level, but people, men, nor women, well, actually women do, women talk more about it, Uh, men do not talk about it if they're in love with someone. Mm. Now, 50% of women, about 50% of women will become involved in in an affair. Um, Women are usually thought of as being very faithful, very homebound, very maternal, very protective of their families, but 50% is a pretty high number. Well, that is usually who men have affairs with. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, the number is high. And the reasons women have affairs are very different from the reasons that men have affairs. Uh, Men are much more willing to have simply sexual affairs, uh, while women are often trying to meet some kind of an emotional need. Mm -hmm. Uh, And women are much more likely to be unhappy in their marriage if they have an affair. And 60% of men who have affairs are very happily married. Hmm. So they're basically looking for 
sexual gratification, I would imagine. The top three reasons men have affairs are sex, sex, and sex. <laughs> Boy, that, that kind of narrows <laughs> it down a little bit. <laughs> and there, there are self-esteem reasons, uh, especially when men fall in love, and it really threatens their marriage. It, it usually is to meet more self-esteem needs, somebody who preci- appreciates them for who they are, not just what they provide. Mm-hmm. Men who are powerful seem to be more likely to get involved in affairs. Is it because of their ego? Uh, they have a big ego, and that's why they're powerful. That's why they were able to accomplish so much. Is that why they also become involved, tend to become involved in affairs? I think so. Some people say, well, maybe they have a higher has- testosterone level. Maybe they're more driven. They also have more opportunity. And they're usually risk takers. They're willing and able to take more risks. And they're more attractive to women. That women are still choose men often based on their socioeconomic status. Wow. Now, who usually initiates an affair? Is it the woman or the man? It's actually about 50-50 now. Of the people surveyed, about 50% said it was mutual, and about 25% said the male, the man initiated it, and 25% said the women initiated it. So, How anyone l- can. <laughs> How long does the average affair usually last? Love affairs last on an average of two to three years. Um, sex affairs are usually sporadic and opportunistic. They may recur on a regular basis, but usually they're, they're very brief. Mm-hmm. It used to be said that when a man or a woman got involved in an affair, uh, it was because they w- were getting something they weren't getting at home. How true is that stereotype? That's more true of women than men. Uh, women are motivated mostly because of emotional reasons. Um, Often, the number one reason women give is that they're lonely, that they want someone to talk to, they want someone who understands them, they want someone who appreciates them. In your book, you you say that uh, men are usually more prone to get involved in an affair early in their marriage? That's correct. Some of the studies say um, within the first two years is the first uh, episode of infidelity. Now, you would think that all the excitement and (laughs) fun and joy of being married an affair would be the last thing on your mind during the first two years? I think the first year of marriage is very difficult for most people. Uh, Expectations are seldom realized and and it's a struggle learning to to live together and love each other. The other thing is that we know there's a brain chemistry dynamic, that there's an amphetamine-like chemical called PEA that really induces a mating drive that, that pushes us to mate and in the long run with with multiple mates uh, and this this mating chemical really dissolves in a couple of years it may last two years may last three but it doesn't last for very long mm. so before we get married we're often in that in love uh, state and over time that goes away and so then you're left with someone who hopefully becomes your best friend and that makes a, a good and lasting foundation for a relationship. The feelings are, are not a good basis by themselves for a marriage. Mm-hmm. There has to be that uh, trust that develops in the marriage. And building trust is a way of uh, affair-proofing a marriage? I think it's building a sense of connection that as much as people feel like they're in love and will do anything for it, include uh, destroy their marriage and devastate their spouse, uh, in the long run, it, it doesn't work out. Of those 
10 or so percent who divorce their uh, spouse and marry their lover, about 70 percent of those get another divorce. Mm. And of that 30 percent who stay married, who stay married to their lover, um, half of them are unhappy again. Mm. So only 10 percent divorce and marry the person they had the affair with, and usually those marriages don't do very well. So if they're looking for something better, chances are they, they didn't find it, or chances they're not going to find it. Chances <laughs> are remote <laughs> on the long term. Now, people will say, oh, yes, the first five or ten years was great, but when you look at 20 years down the road, most of those marriages came apart. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens to the, uh, the partner who is the victim in all this? Let's say a husband has an affair. What happens to the wife? It's devastating. Uh, it often destroys her whole life. It shatters her self-confidence and certainly changes her socioeconomic status. Um, but men are equally devastated. Uh, if, a, if a wife has an affair, men are just as devastated as women are. Mm -hmm. um, certainly they often have an economic advantage, but emotionally they don't fare really any better. And I, I think it destroys your confidence um, in yourself as well as your spouse and in future relationships mm. and that's hard to rebuild now when the couple does stay together despite one of them having an affair does the marriage ever return to the same state it was before the affair it often gets better it often gets better it often gets better because for s many people say it was a wake-up call that they had gotten careless mm -hmm. instead of careful um, that they had quit making their primary relationship primary. They had stopped giving it prime time. And they really turn it around. They recommit to each other. They develop a more intimate relationship. And they're more protective. Are senior citizens as prone to having an affair as a younger married couple? More so than, than usual, but there's no comparison. Cer certainly most uh, people who are going to have an affair, have it between 20 and 45. The numbers drop way down after 50. Mm -hmm. What are the telltale signs? <laughs> if you think your spouse is having an affair, what should you look for? Well, it's important not to falsely accuse your spouse because uh, there's no way out of that one. They're going to deny it and you can choose to never believe them. So it's important to look at the whole picture. Uh, a big change in appearance. Um, can be a signal that suddenly that extra 10 pounds is gone. Uh, there's a change in hair. There's working out. But you might think, wow, she's doing that for me. And, and that may be true, <laughs> which is why it's important to be careful. Mm -hmm. So you look for a whole pattern. You look for somebody who changes their experience and isn't around. Are they emotionally and physically gone? Um, they're probably treating you differently. I always tell people, use your senses. You know, look listen does someone's name come up a lot as much as you would uh, not believe it people start talking about this other person smell is there a different scent are they using breath mints are they using new perfumes and lotions and, and uh, aftershaves uh, just look at your whole life and look at your partner does is there a sex is there a change in their your sexual relationship a lot more or a lot less mm -hmm. so there <laughs> And the, the big surprise is the passenger car seat adjustment. That if someone else has been in the car, <laughs> the position of the seat's been changed. Uh, and the cellular, uh, repeat number on a cellular phone. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's not familiar. Well, you mentioned 
uh, you have to be careful when you when you bring that up. If if you find out that there's a lot of evidence, how do you handle that? I mean, geez, if like you say, if you bring it up, the other person is going to deny it. And that's probably the best thing for them to do. I suppose they're going to hope that <laughs> that you're mistaken or you'll have second thoughts. But how should one go about uh, handling that information? Well. Most affairs that are discovered, the spouse does confess. Ah. Very seldom do other people tell. Um, some people find enough evidence that they say, look, here it is. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen a, a note, and a lot of notes are found. Uh, they've, picked, they've heard a phone call, um, so they know. Mm -hmm. And if you do know and you decide to challenge your spouse, make sure you lay it all out. Don't use this as a truth test because then it just makes everything more difficult. Um, so I think you can always say, well, whether you are or not, uh, our relationship needs to change because uh, I'm not confident. Mm -hmm. So something's missing here. So let's work out a closer, better relationship with better communication. Something's wrong if you're that suspicious. Psychologist Dr. Lana Staley, author of Triangles, Understanding, Preventing, and Surviving an Affair. She's also co-author of Snap Strategies for Couples, 40 Fast Fixes for Everyday Relationship Pitfalls. Dr. Staley is a founding member of the Board of Directors of the Center for Women and Democracy at the University of Washington. She's also a founding chair of the Global Networking Program. And Dr. Staley is also former member of the board of Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. After the break, preventing a marriage that's about to turn sour. Panoramic lifestyle clothing. Hey, look alive! Everything lights up, makes you want to shout. Talk about happiness, that's what we're talking about. You'll look great in a panoramic lifestyle t-shirt. Nobody won't bring you happiness, but we know who will. Come on now, smile, get happy. Order your t-shirt today at plclothing.store. plclothing.store. There are forces that don't want you to vote, especially if you're young, old, or a minority. They're putting up obstacles to keep you from the ballot box. Know your rights and register to vote. You can do it quickly and easily online at plclothing.store. Take a stand and let your voice be heard. Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing, where a vision moves in all directions. Now, let's welcome women's humor and wellness speaker, Jan King. She's written a number of relationship books, starting in the early 1990s. They include The Menopause Survival Kit, Signs You're Not in the Mood, Bouncing Back, and maybe her most popular book, Ladies, Start Your Engines. Jan, I understand you believe that husbands tend to have affairs when their wives start to put the relationship on the back burner. It's true. That's true. It is true. Wow. I think it's right. Uh, you know, we're making a moral judgment, but that's true. 
And I found three general, the book has a lot of information, but if we kind of, you know, gleaned three of the most important things I discovered is, number one, over the course of relationship, unresolved arguments and problems in marriages really build resentment up on both sides. But women, we know, really harbor resentment a lot more than men. It's much harder for them to let it go. So what you, in effect, have is a lot of angry women. You know, they're angry at their husbands. And women that are angry at their husbands, unlike the husband, let's say there's been a big fight, kind of a nasty fight, and the husband wants to make up, you know, by having sex. And the woman is like, you know, I'd rather have bamboo shoots put under my fingernails than have sex. That's how women react. Because number two point is men and women approach sex from an entirely different perspective especially in our 40s and 50s, because we learned it so differently, you know? Now, some men will say that women always find something more important to do than making love. Right, and that's true. That's true. That is true. Another truism. (laughs) And the reason they do that is because they are, quote, quote, not in the mood. Well, that's not the real reason. The real reason is they're angry at their husbands over something that hasn't been resolved, or they feel they're kind of being used, that there's not a lot of tenderness or, or real, you know, love involved in this. So they, they shut off. They'd rather read a book. They'd rather watch The Tonight Show. And it just doesn't hold the same thing for them. And it, it comes back to this thing about, about learning about sex. And so I say to women in the book, you have got to learn to become more like men in your approach to sex. You have to be learn to be more spontaneous quit waiting for that perfect moment because in any relationship there's never going to be a day when something doesn't happen that upsets you or you don't get a little ticked off at each other you know what i'm saying or you know the kids aren't banging on the door you're not exhausted or whatever it's the the perfect moment is never there you have to seize that moment be more like a man be more physiological about it Men always want women to be more aggressive, and you hear that all the time, and that's valid, you know. It's like, well, why can't she be the aggressor? You know, I'm always the one to approach her, and half the time I get rejected. And that's, and, and I tell women, you don't understand how terrible that is for a man. It's like the poor little guy at the prom that goes to ask a girl to dance, and she rejects him. It's very, very hurtful for a man to reject them. I'm not saying under any circumstances, you know, you have to accept them. But um, rejection is not fun, and you should be the aggressor sometimes. It's a hoot. They love it. Well, we hear that from men a lot, that yeah. uh, their wives complain a lot. Things are never, they, they can't do anything right mm-hmm. very often. It's true. It's true, and that's why I say to women, get rid of that. You know, you're always going to be a little bit angry about something, or there's going to be something your kids did or something that happened that upsets you during that day. You have to learn to put that aside. And I tell women, women, one thing I am a real big proponent of uh, that women do wrong is they place their children literally in bed between them and their husbands, figuratively and literally. A lot of times they will absorb themselves in their children and distance themselves emotionally from their husbands purposefully by, you know, spending all their time with their kids or putting the kid actually in the bed with them. I know couples that have done that till the kid is five or six years old. And that's crazy. Wow. You know, <laughs> when you think about it, why are they doing that? It's like, oh, well, you know, there's always an excuse that the baby cries or, I, you know, I can't break the habit. Well, that's nonsense. You know, what's more important? 
so the priority here is they're doing it for a reason. They're at sh- the women are definitely causing a distance between they and their husbands. We, we look at the world around us, and we still hear the, the statistic that uh, 50% of all, all marriages break up. Yeah. Uh, men and, and women are, are running around. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also look at the younger generation. Not as many couples even uh, want to get married anymore. Right. Uh, a lot of single-parent families. Can... Is it possible that we can resolve these differences between men and women and to have uh, solid uh, marriages again? Yeah, I think we definitely can. When you still love someone, you certainly can, and there's a lot of things you can do. The first thing you can do is learn to communicate, get, that, get some of those skills back with communicating. And what happens is the communication dies or becomes to the point where you're arguing all the time. And I have a a very large chapter devoted to the kinds of destructive arguing that take place between couples, the kind where one is always interrupting the other or one is attacking the other personally and not the issue. And you go through these different stages and finally most of them get to a point where they completely shut off and and the silent treatment ensues because neither party feels they're ever going to get a break. There's no compromise. It's like I can never win. I'm not even going to discuss it with her or him. And when you get to this point, you're going to kill all the passion, any passion left in your marriage. Can you recover from that point, or is it too late no, at that point? I don't think it's ever too late. I truly don't believe that, or I wouldn't have written this book. I, I've seen people do amazing turnarounds. It's not easy, though. I'm not telling you, like, boy, you're going to read a book, and within two weeks, everything's great. It could take a couple years. But once you become aware of what you're doing and you sit down in a calmer time and talk about it and you make rules and you say okay when we argue foul language is a no-no we're not going to do that where i'm going to let one you have your say without interruption then i will have my say we will stick only to this issue at hand not the hundreds of other unresolved ones you know we're still mad about and if you do that and we we're going to limit this argument to fifteen minutes and if it's escalating we take a time out like we do with our children, and we come back when we're calmer. And we never issue an ultimatum because that means someone always loses and somebody wins. In marriage, the key word is compromise. And I don't think there's anything usually that can't be solved without some kind of a compromise where both sides feel they've gained a little something and they haven't lost everything. And you can learn to do that. It's, it's not that impossible, but it takes working through it. I mean... It's not going to happen the first time, but if you, if you know these things and you keep them in mind, I have a special tear-out section at the end of my book for men, and it, and it lists all these things, and for women, too. And I say, even put it in front of you or write it out, and you will help create these skills. The second thing, what really successful, I know there are couples that have wonderful marriages after 30, 40 years. Believe me, I've seen those, too. These people also do something else. Instead of letting things get to the point where they're almost irreparable, they'll have weekly discussions in an atmosphere of calm. Then you can bring up things that are bugging you and try to kind of nip them in the bud and air them out while you're still calm and you're not just so furious. You know, when you get to that point where you're just so angry and you argue, you're going to solve nothing. I mean, nothing will be solved. So try to have weekly discussions. Bring yourselves closer together that way. The third way for women and men Get a sitter for the kids or whatever, or if the kids are older and out of the house, take some time for vacations for yourselves, a weekend away. Work on the romance like you were dating again. 
may sound stupid. A lot of people go, oh, well, that's really unrealistic, but it's not. Because the marriages that I know that are still hot and really work well, they do this. Once a week, they have a date night. They dress up. They go out. You know, he picks a spot. She picks a spot. They have a great romantic dinner, and they keep everything positive. And the fourth thing that's real important, every day learn to say something positive to your partner. And that really helps a lot. It's kind of like just give them that little stroke they need. And if you, and I say to women, women are like, yeah, but I always have to be the one. Well, big deal. So what? It's got to start somewhere. The, the big picture is your marriage. So you start it. Say some, one nice thing to him every day. Believe me, within a couple weeks, you're going to start hearing it back again. Well, words from the wise. Uh, the book is Ladies, Start Your Engines. But I'll tell you something. The problems are all the same. We're all human beings. Nobody is that unique. These problems, I, I hear the same things. I've experienced the same things. I'm not immune to them either, you know. Uh, a lot of times, my husband and I will get in a fight, and he'll say, you ought to take your own advice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks, for, thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope to talk to you again when my next book comes out. We'll make a date. Okay, great. <laughs> Women's humor and wellness speaker Jan King, author of the book, Ladies, Start Your Engines as well as many, many more. Jan taught biology for six years at South Philadelphia High School. She earned her B.A. in biology from the University of Connecticut and an M.S. in science education from the University of Pennsylvania. Well, up next, it seemed like a marriage made in heaven, but it made worldwide headlines when the wife was murdered. Stock market traders need the right financial visualizations to be successful. And that's what FinViz Elite is all about. FinViz Elite provides real-time market data, research, screeners, ratings, and technical indicators backed by 24 years of historical statistics, all presented in an advertising-free interface at a price everyone can afford. Get details about FinViz Elite at krobcollection.com. is reported for CNN, The Associated Press, ABC News, Fox News, and is in the Press Club Hall of Fame. This is the Ken Robinson Podcast, with radio and television host Ken Robinson. It was called The Crime of the Century, and it inspired a popular TV series called The Fugitive, as well as a movie of the same name starring Harrison Ford. Sam Shepard was an American neurosurgeon who in 1954 was convicted of murdering his wife Marilyn in their Bay Village, Ohio home. The case was controversial from the beginning with extensive and prolonged nationwide media coverage. Many claimed Sam Shepard was innocent. Police maintained he was guilty. Shepard was exonerated in 1966 after the U.S. Supreme Court determined that the carnival atmosphere surrounding the doctor's first trial made due process impossible and ordered him released to face a retrial. Shepard spoke to reporters after getting out of prison. He blamed adverse publicity for his conviction and said it caused the premature deaths of his parents. Can you briefly describe your recent experience in the Ohio penitentiary, what it was like there for you? It was hell. Who do you think is most responsible for the what you consider to be the unjust decision in 1954? 
Well, I would say uh, politics, probably. How much does it cost you? Ten years. Oh, in money, sir. Money could not possibly repay me for my mother's life. How much would it cost to bring her back? My father. My father-in-law. Not long after he was released, Dr. Shepard remarried and prepared for a second trial with defense attorney F. Lee Bailey. I've been waiting for 12 years to be retried, and I wish to be retried because Mr. Bailey... F. Lee Bailey of Boston is going to vindicate me and prove my innocence in court. However, the other part of my emotion is that I fear for my wife's health, for the ordeal that she must go through on top of the ordeal she's already been subjected to. This has not been easy on her, and this goes for the rest of the family, including our son, our daughter, our parents in Europe. This is not going to be easy on them. Some of them because they're too young and others because they're too old. But on the other hand, I welcome the chance to prove my innocence, which I will do. The second trial ended with Sam Shepard being acquitted. But by that time, his reputation had been ruined and he never practiced medicine again. In case you don't know the whole story, here it is. On the night of July 3rd, 1954, Sam and Marilyn were entertaining neighbors at their home along the Lake Erie shore when the doctor fell asleep on the daybed in the living room. Marilyn walked the neighbors out. Then, in the early morning hours, Marilyn was bludgeoned to death in her bed with an unknown instrument. The bedroom was covered with blood spatter and drops. Blood was found on the floors throughout the house. Some items in the house, including Sam Shepard's wristwatch, keychain, and fraternity ring, appeared to have been stolen. They were later found in a canvas bag and shrubbery behind the home. According to Dr. Shepard, he was sleeping soundly on the daybed when he heard cries from his wife. He ran upstairs when he saw a white form in the bedroom. He was then knocked unconscious. When he awoke, he says he saw the person downstairs chase the intruder out of the house down to the beach where they tussled and Shepard claimed he was knocked unconscious again at that point. At 5.40 a.m., a neighbor received an urgent phone call from Dr. Shepard who pleaded for him to come to the Shepard house. When his neighbor and wife arrived, Shepard was found shirtless and his pants were wet with a blood stain on the knee. Authorities arrived shortly thereafter. Dr. Shepard seemed disoriented and in shock. The family dog was not heard barking to indicate an intruder at the time, and their seven-year-old son was asleep in the adjacent bedroom throughout the incident. The crime created a media sensation. Some said he was guilty and demanded an immediate conviction. Shepard maintained he and his wife had been attacked. Dr. Sam Shepard died in 1970, and the case remains controversial to this day. In 1993, the Bay Village, Ohio home where the crime occurred was torn down. However, the mantle from the fireplace was saved and auctioned off on March 2nd of 2020. And Eric Eakin of the Bay Village Historical Society was there. Eric, that was a historic day in itself, was it not? That is correct. This uh, was the only piece of the original Sam Shepard house that was saved from demolition years ago. It's been kept in a basement for 20-some years. 
Uh, the uh, owners were moving on, didn't want it anymore, and donated it to the Bay Village Historical Society. How, so it was auctioned off, right? Yes, sir, that's correct. Uh, bidding was fast and furious, and a gentleman from Rocky River was the uh, eventual winner. Did he uh, indicate what he plans to do with it? He's going to make it the center spread of the centerpiece of his new uh, living room. He's remodeling his house. Uh, he's a Sam Shepard fan, I guess if that's the word. Uh, he's followed the case. He's read a lot of the books. Uh, he's asked for extensive documentation, which we've provided, and uh, he's going to lean up against this thing and tell his buddies that, hey, uh, look what I got here. It's the mantelpiece from Sam Shepard's house. <laughs> now, i got to say, I'm a little surprised it didn't go for more money, considering that this uh, was an international case. Well, uh, the, the buyer doesn't want to close the actual uh, purchase price, but um, it um, went where more than we thought it might go for. And then, I but... mean, how do you put a price on something like this? This is the last remnant of the Sam Shepard house. There will be no other uh, piece of memorabilia like this ever again. Absolutely. Now, the funds are going to go to help the Historical Society, right? That's correct. Yes, sir. We uh, were in the middle of a big preservation project. Uh, that's what this uh, fundraiser was about. Okay. So uh, can you describe the mantle to us? Uh, I guess we'd have to go back in archive footage if we could find any police photos or anything actually, like that. Uh, actually, when the police came in the morning of the murder, May 4th of 1954, they took extensive photos, but there, or, I'm sorry, July 4th, 1954, uh, they took very few photos. You know, they were mostly concerned with the bedroom where the murder occurred and the day bed where Dr. Sam claimed to have uh, uh, waken up. Um, but we were in contact with Cleveland State University, which has the complete files for the Sam Shepard case. And uh, through the cooperation of Cleveland State and their archives, uh, we were able to obtain photographs of the living room showing the, the fireplace mantle uh, uh, right across from the day bed where Dr. Sam uh, passed out. Wow. Could you describe the mantle to us? Uh, it was a fairly conventional mantle. The, the, the mouth of it, I guess, was very wide. It had uh, some tiles, fancy tiles around the inner surface of it. But the mantle itself was uh, actually a pre-made mantle. The original builder's certificate was still on the back of it. And when a home builder, you know, he would buy doors and windows and mantles. And this was apparently a, a pre-made item. Uh, even had the builder's signature on the back and, uh, and slipped it into place. Wow. White wood, uh, nicely decorated. You don't see them look quite like that anymore. Nicely, nicely uh, constructed. Jeez. If that mantle could only talk. If that mantle could only talk. What do you think? Innocent or guilty? I think I think he's innocent. I think it was the mayor that did it. Hmm. But if I was good at this stuff, I'd be a detective. <laughs> <laughs> I usually almost, well, almost always get them wrong. <laughs> I mean, uh, Bay Village is, is known for two of the most uh, unusual and as yet unsolved murder cases, 
in the history of, uh, of crime, uh, the Sam Shepard murder and the Amy Mahalovic murder, both of which still hang over our heads to this day. Uh, and the, the interest in this Sam Shepard mantle uh, here some, I don't know, how many years later, uh, 66 years later, is uh, a testament to um, how people have found this murder to be so interesting. It clicked a lot of boxes at a handsome young doctor and a beautiful young pregnant wife and a mysterious stranger and a tussle at the top of the stairs and the doctor's knocked out twice and he comes to in the lake and it's 4th of July. And uh, it was just a, a remarkable story that people still uh, find fascinating to this day. Absolutely. When you look back, uh, early 1950s, was this bigger than any of the trial, the modern-day trials we, we've experienced, like, uh, you know, the uh, O.J. Simpson trial and, uh, you know, yeah. John Bonet Ramsey missing and uh, yeah. all the other trials that have come, you know, uh, later, much later? Um, Ken, what made this remarkable is that there were three newspapers in town at the time, each scrambling for readership, and each was trying to get drop on the other. And each was trying to get uh, a story that the others didn't have to sell more newspapers. And they would go to any length to get it. Uh, and that's what kind of made this case famous and what eventually got Dr. Sam released after more than nine years in prison when F. Lee, Convaley, F. Lee Bailey convinced the, the Supreme Court of the United States that it was impossible for Dr. Sam to have received a fair trial by an impartial jury because of the pre-trial publicity. And it was uh, every day the separate murder case was on the front page of every paper for weeks and weeks and weeks. So we were kind of toward the end of the, the age of yellow journalism back then. Yes, yes, uh-huh, exactly. And, uh, you know, Louis B. Seltzer writes an editorial uh, why isn't he in jail? You know, that rich doctor being shielded by his rich parents owns a family hospital in Bay Village. And, you know, he's being afforded preferential treatment by the police because he, he'd been good friends with the police department. He was the, the physician for the high school football team. He had friends with the mayor. Um, and the, the press doesn't like that sort of inequality. And uh, that if Sam were given deference, uh, they wanted to expose it and uh, right the wrong. Wow. Louis uh, uh, Seltzer was the uh, publisher and editor of the Cleveland of Press, the, press, the uh, yes. uh -huh. popular, uh, the most popular newspaper in, in Cleveland, Ohio at the time. Yeah, perhaps. Now, uh, being involved with the Historical Society, do you uh, have any insight as to, to what actually happened in uh, that's the Shepherd family house? Well, uh, um, opinions are like noses. We all have one. Um, I've read a lot of the books on the Sam Shepherd, and each book will convince you of another way of thinking. But if you look at the big picture, if you if you trust law enforcement who smelled right from the start that this was a domestic homicide. And that's why um, the press came into play is to why this guy, it, it was so obvious to virtually everyone that took a look at this case, that Dr. Sam was jealous, 
uh, was angry that his wife, now pregnant with another child, he'd been having an affair with a nurse. This was going to further tie him down. He, for whatever reason, gets enraged, grabs whatever is handy, perhaps the bedside lamp that was never recovered, and commits a, a heinous crime. This was a crime of passion. What was done to Marilyn Shepard, a normal burglar would not do. He'd knock her out and run. He wouldn't inflict the damage done to her. And then the crime scene was seemed to be staged. Her body was moved. It was made to appear to have been a sex crime. The, the dumping out of the doctor's bag, the emptying of the drawers onto the floor, all looked very staged to those who had seen these things time and time again. And that's why all the fingers pointed at Dr. Sam right from the start. And I think we have to trust uh, the gut of law enforcement who kind of knew right from the start it was him. Now, what about uh, Richard Eberling? Now, you mentioned, uh, you know, a common criminal. Oh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a quite a character he, in yeah, all of this. He was a common he, criminal. Um, and oh, he, yeah. he was their handyman, right? That's correct. Yeah, but he was a handyman for a lot of different people. He was the interior decorator of the rich and famous all around the west side of Cleveland. He threw big, huge parties at his house, and everybody would come to these parties. But he was a scoundrel at, at heart, and he'd had a rough childhood, and um, he, he was not mentally stable. Um, he ended up in prison and uh, for killing Ethel Mae Durkin, and uh, yeah, there's a whole backstory to him, and you know, we may never know. A lot of fingers point to Eberling. A lot of fingers point to uh, the Mayor Houck's wife, Esther Houck, uh, as that she walked in on her husband and Marilyn and Flagrante and got so upset that uh, uh, she did to Marilyn what was done, uh, and it was the mayor who knocked out Sam uh, running to the top of the stairs. Um, but if you, if you, when the case was reopened, when Chip Shepard reopened the case and tried to convince the jury that, uh, that the state of Ohio was culpable for, uh, in, for pre imprisoning his father wrongly, all of that evidence was looked at again with new scientific eyes, with new knowledge, with an unbiased opinion. And every FBI and law enforcement agent that looked at that case, not knowing it was Shepard, none of them had a clue it was Shepard. They just looked at the case from the evidence. Every one of them was in agreement that well, this was a domestic homicide, a crime of passion uh, committed by someone that she knew well, and, and that's just what happened. Even more kind of strange and, uh, you know, I would say gruesome, but more uh, more uneasiness about that case was the fact that uh, uh, Sam Shepard, uh, after he was, uh, you know, uh, it was exonerated by exonerated. the with Ethel Bailey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He embarked on a wrestling uh, career, oh, and he yeah, was seen he, on he, TV wrestling oh, in wrestling was, uh, matches. Doctor Death. <laughs> he was Doctor Death. He ended up marrying his. Uh, his wrestling manager's 19-year-old daughter and ended up living with them. He, he was found dead on his bar, wrestling manager's kitchen floor at age 42. Of uh, uh, He drank himself to death. You know, 
he was just, he had a demon in him that he couldn't wash out with alcohol. And uh, I think we kind of all know why. So probably, you know, people love a good consp- <coughs> conspiracy theory, I guess. So oh, maybe sure. that's why people want to want to believe that he didn't commit, uh, that he didn't kill his wife. You think that's a part of it? We had a, uh, years ago, we had a, a shepherd symposium. As a little fundraiser for the Bay Village Historical Society, we had uh, three people speak to us. We had uh, the first officer to arrive on the scene. That was Officer um, Fred Drinken. Uh, he spoke about what he'd found that morning when he was he got there. Then we had uh, Dick Fagler, the columnist, who spoke on uh, the journalism of the time and how this story developed. And then we had the third and final speaker was Stephen Deaver from the prosecutor's office, who gave us about a 35-minute PowerPoint presentation, which was essentially all the evidence that the state was using to defend itself from Chip Shepard's lawsuit. And it was pretty definitive right from the start that Sam Shepard had done this. This Mr. Deaver made an overwhelming case against Dr. Sam. The lights come up at the end of the talk. Uh, People are putting their coats on, and I raise my hand, and I ask everyone before they leave, could I see a show of hands as to how many thought he was innocent and how many thought he was guilty? And easily half the people still thought he was innocent. (laughs) So I, I don't know what would ever convince them. The evidence grows thinner and older. The DNA technology certainly grows more, more uh, accurate, but um, that all of that has pretty much sailed. This evidence is being dispersed and uh, is growing older with with time, and uh, we just may never know. And that's that's what what piqued people to want to claim uh, a, a small part of this memory in uh, this Sam Shepard mantelpiece. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, you know, I guess part of the myth is fueled by, uh, you know, the, the the TV show, The Fugitive, which was very popular in the 1960s. Yeah, there was it really the movie. had nothing to do with Sam Shepard. <laughs> yeah, actually. Uh, he didn't Either run... The movie, the, the movie with uh, Harrison Ford. Harrison the, Ford. The mm-hmm. TV show really had nothing to do with Sam Shepard. And the, the producers of both would readily admit it. <laughs> Why do people link yeah. those two, though? Because Sam Shepard didn't run around the country hiding out, uh, you know, no, from no. place to place. <laughs> no, he couldn't. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, and then he, he gets involved with the German Ariane Treben Johans, who starts sending him love letters in prison. She comes over here. She's very well-to-do. Um, they begin cohorting about, and, um, you know, uh, he ends up, she ends up kicking him out because he's too violent. And um, it, it just went from bad to worse after 4th of July, 1954, for Dr. Sam Shepard. No, no doubt about it. Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm not a good detective. I guess the, the, the mayor of Bay Village didn't do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, no, he didn't. He, he, walked with a, he, he walked with a noticeable limp. He had a club foot. And... Um, uh, well, Ken, who knows? Who knows? I, 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 like I say, we'll never know, but the people who do this for a living say it was Sam. 
Well, I guess that's who we have to trust. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, very good. Well, congratulations on the sale. Hope it helps out uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, it will. It certainly will. All right. Well, really appreciate the interview. Nice, nice talking to you, sir. Eric Eakin of the Bay Village, Ohio Historical Society telling us about the Sam Shepard murder case, which generated international attention in the 1950s and 60s and remains mysterious to this day. Well, I hope you found this podcast interesting and informative. First of all, I want to thank the Society of Professional Journalists for giving me the Lifetime Achievement Award. I'm really humbled by this honor. A few years ago, I was inducted into the Cleveland Press Club Hall of Fame. I so appreciate everyone who helped make those designations possible. Our music is by H Beats. That's H Beats with a Z. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about it. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to Ken's Corner. I'm Ken Robinson. Watch out for a tax-related identity theft during this tax filing season. Adam Clemens of the Federal Trade Commission explains what to be aware of and where to go for help if you are a victim. Tax-related identity theft happens when an identity thief steals your Social Security number uh, to get a refund or uh, to, to gain employment, uh, something to that nature. Uh, if one of those two things happens, we encourage you to contact the IRS uh, if you were uh, paid by an employer that you don't recognize or you don't know, or if uh, more than one tax return was filed in your name that you didn't authorize uh, using your Social Security number. Uh, however, after uh, utilizing the great resources that the IRS can offer you, uh, we also encourage you to contact the FTC after that. The FTC has a great resource, which is uh, called the identitytheft.gov which was uh, created a couple years ago pursuant to an executive order because we recognize that there was really no one-stop shop for victims of identity theft. So in the uh, event of a tax-related identity theft, which is just one form of, of identity theft, this website that the FTC runs uh, will pre-populate all the necessary IRS forms that a person needs or a victim needs to recover from this identity theft and will help them start the recovery process. So if you find that you've become a victim of identity theft or your personal information has been compromised but not used, uh, we want you to visit identitytheft.gov, which is available in English and Spanish, and use this one-stop shop to start the recovery process. The uh, website is set up in a very simple way uh, that the victim can answer uh, very simple questions which help navigate them through uh, the website uh, to start uh, a recovery plan. Adam Clemens of the Federal Trade Commission. Thanks for stopping by Ken's Corner. And please subscribe to our podcast series, The Ken Robinson Shows.